Hello, Modern Mystics. Spells for the Modern Mystic, a ritual guidebook and spellcasting kit, is coming out on September 29th and is available wherever books are sold. Brandon and I have created a book and kit with the essentials for a complete ritual practice, including 25 spells for healing, wealth, love, and personal transformation. It also comes with 11 spell candles, three incense cones, and ritual oil. So you can do all of the rituals in the book with the contents and additional household items. We poured our hearts into the book and shared all of the rituals that I used to help me find my soulmate, Brandon. I used these rituals to open Modern Mystic Shop, to get our dream home, and to quickly raise money to be able to get our inventory for Good Morning America. These rituals have changed our lives, and we know they can do the same for you. So please support us by placing a pre-order today and help us get on the best sellers list so we can help impact even more people with these practices. Thanks so much, guys. All right, Brandon, this will be an interesting conversation because I feel like I know a lot of the answers and this is really more for our audience to get to know you, but maybe I don't. So I'm going to see if I can learn something new about my husband today that I didn't know before. And maybe I will, maybe I won't. But thanks for coming on Extra Credit. Hey, it's really glad. I'm I'm really happy to be here. So it's, it's going to be a super neat experience, I think. Happy to be here in our house. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So how I start with everyone is I want to understand what it was like when you came onto the scene. So when you were born, you know, where were you? What were your parents doing, feeling? You know, what was the climate when Brandon Knight burst onto the scene um, in Johnson City, Tennessee on, let's see, July 17th, 1976, for those who want to pull his birth chart, <laughs> 10, 10, 30 something. No, 10, 16 a.m. <laughs> so yeah, it, it was very interesting um, because the my parents, they couldn't, my, my mother was told that she couldn't have children um, or if she's going to have children, it's going to be very, um, very risky. And so I, all their hopes and dreams, quote unquote, were, were put into to me being born. And, um, the doctor actually thought I was a, uh, a woman in the womb or a, a daughter that the, they thought that, uh, that my, <laughs> that my parents are going to have a daughter and I ended up being a, a surprise for them. So that was cool. Um, yeah. And did they know what they were going to name you if you were a girl? Because I know what my parents were going to name me if I was a boy. So what were they What were they planning on? Who were they planning on giving birth to? Do you know? No, I, I think they found out that I was a boy like maybe late into the pregnancy. Um, they, they discovered that. And so the reason why they confused me with a girl in the womb is because my heart rate was the same as a girl's in the womb because the heart rate is different between a, a boy and a girl. And my heart rate had the same thing as a girl, so they thought I was a girl. And so they uh, that was early, though. So when they found out they had enough time to decide on a name, 
And so um, they named me Charles after my dad, um, even though my dad's Charlie, and um, a different middle name, so I'm not a junior. But um, but yeah, so that's how it went. I, I, as far as I know, they didn't have any backup plans for girls. And you were saying it was interesting because of what? Oh, I, I think it was interesting because of um, the the setting. Like um, my, my mom and my father both kind of put... Um, I think a lot of their hopes and dreams and also their, their, their plans for the future of the family around my birth. Um, you know, dad was a pastor and mom, you know, they, they devoted themselves to a life of service in the church and the church of the Nazarene is where my dad pastored at. And I, I think not having a child is, is a very heartbreaking scenario in that because what you want is someone to carry forward the ministry you know, the service aspect and, um, at the very least carry on a spiritual legacy. If you're not going to be a pastor, if you're a child of a pastor. And so they, um, they were thrilled that I was a boy and that, that I, I came out and could carry on this, this quote unquote legacy that, that they had in mind at the time. So when you say legacy, does the legacy of pastoring precede anyone in your family prior to your dad, or was he I know he kind of had sort of like an abrupt spiritual, come, literal come to Jesus moment, but um, was he wanting to start this legacy or was this some sort of pre-existing legacy in the family tree? No, nothing pre-existing. His dad was uh, non-existent and a drunk and, you know, um, he grew up really poor and um, his mom worked three jobs to support a, a family of five and, um, and so it, it, he didn't have anything, you know, in the background other than just hard work and struggle, you know? Um, so this was, yeah, I, I think the, the thing that, that because he had such an, um, uh, an immense, like, as you say, come to Jesus, he had like a really big conversion story, visions and everything. And, and I, I think that that gave way to like, um, a, a really inset kind of belief system around pastoring and Christianity in general. And so this is the new way of being, but it, it feels like it's always been for him, you know. And so when you popped out of the oven, you, um, can you tell me a little bit about uh, what your family was like, you know, socioeconomically, uh, where you were located? Because I, I know with pastoring, sometimes people get moved around a little bit. So kind of where were you on the planet Earth and set the scene? Sure. So the place that I was born is Johnson City, and my dad at the time was pastoring a place called Elizabethan, Tennessee. Elizabethan is about as far as you can get um, east Tennessee and still be in Tennessee without crossing over the border into North Carolina. And so it's right along the mountains there. Um, it's close to Pigeon Forge and Gatlinburg, maybe 45 minutes east of, of there. So if that gives you a, anybody who knows the area, if that gives you an idea. Um, it, it's, um, so we, I, I grew up from that, from the time I was born until nine years old, grew up in that area, had, um, maybe a couple of, of good friends. And, um, then we left, we loved that church. It was devastating to leave. The people were amazing. They loved us. It was, it was crazy, uh, to move, but it was time. And, um, when we moved, we moved to a place called Ludland, Tennessee, and that's kind of a suburb of Nashville now in a way. But, um, Lebanon was a lot harder. We, um, I didn't have like this, this nice mountain area with, you know, some placid friends and whatnot. And there were literally people wanting to fight me in my front yard and for, you know, coming in new and all that stuff. It was a poor neighborhood. My dad had to break up 
a fight between a pregnant woman and uh, a dude with a, a lead pipe. He's about to beat her to death. I mean, it, it was it was a it was a bad neighborhood. It wasn't that great. It wasn't like um, you know riddled with gang activity or anything, but you know it had poor people problems. The neighborhood did so. And so what were you like when you were a little kid? So you were talking about like one through nine. So I'd love to hear about what activities you did, you know, what were, what your interests were. Also being an only child sometimes is a little bit different than when you grow up with siblings to at least parallel play with. So what what were what was little Brandon like as a cute little boy? Um, I was really happy go lucky from from zero to nine. Um I had a lot of smiles, um, a lot of good times. My parents were, were jovial. We, we didn't grow up with any kind of money or anything. I mean, pastoring in the Nazarene church at the time, it, it, there wasn't any money to go around. We had the place provided for us by the church and everything like that. We, we, um, we were pretty much poor, and we didn't have, uh, have many things, but we were very happy. You know, we, we were connected, and we were a family, and, and that's the short of it, you know, and just good friends. And growing up in a quaint little town. But what did you like to do? What were you spending your time doing? Ah, so from zero to nine, I had some interesting experiences. So me and, and my best friend who lived right across the street from me, we'd go and find crystals. We'd, we'd pick up rocks from uh, around the area. There there were a lot of unique rocks because of the mountainous area and whatnot. And um, we we would, I, I loved rocks and I loved playing with toy cars Um he and I kept big shoe boxes of rocks and toy cars. That's what we did together. Um, and we, we'd um, spend time trying to collide the toy cars and, and things like that. So just typical little boy stuff, I guess. And when you were a kid, what was your understanding of God and Jesus and church? Since it was such a big part of the family business, so to speak, uh, like when in your younger years, what was your understanding in relationship to to religion and spirituality and and the church? It was that that's mm, I, I still to this day try to sift through the memories of of being young at that time and and what happened because I had some spiritual experiences that are hard to describe. I mean, there are times I'll be visited by a spirit, and at the time. I just thought it was Jesus, you know. I mean, I, I didn't know anything about the spirit world. I only know what my parents told me, and and it, it would just feel like somebody's just filling me up with this golden light, and it just felt amazing. And, and I would feel that from time to time. From I, I noticed it like uh, consciously. I think when I was six years old, I get visited by these energies, and um, so and and it confused me a little bit too because my experience of whatever um, was proclaimed as the spirit of Christ in in the church was different than what the church was actually talking about. And I, I didn't understand a lot of the squabbles the church would have if, if we're really following something like the Spirit of Christ. Like there was a lot of things that just didn't add up to me um, about church life versus um, what, what the Spirit of Christ was. And even my experience of the spirit world, my experience of the spirit world was, was different than, and it, it, was, it was more varied than what the Bible included in its scope and what people taught at the church. And so... I started having my questions when I was really young about the whole setup and, and what it looked like. I didn't even realize it at the time that I had my questions, but I, I did looking back. How was those conversations in your household? So, you know, I've met both your parents and it's pretty Jesus heavy. Um, were you raised in an environment where you would be available, where it'd be okay to ask these kinds of questions? Or was it something that, 
you just sort of tucked away for later or were you actively exploring them? How, how did that work? Yeah, it was, we just didn't talk about it at all. It, it was, it was never even a topic that, um, that I wanted to broach with my father at all. I, I just believed what he said about Christ and just took it at that. I mean, even though I had some experiences that were questionable, I didn't go outside of the realm of what it, my dad was extremely overbearing. Um, I mean, he was the kind of person that got out and if I acted up, got a switch or a belt, you know, and, and uh, put me to task that way. And, and I was very scared of my father when I was young. And so he was very authoritarian and believed wholeheartedly in what he, what he believed the, the way to be spiritually was. Otherwise, you know, he's very, um, he was the hellfire kind of preacher, you know, um, it wasn't completely guilt ridden, but it was that there is a hell to shun. And so fear, you know, was a large part of my spiritual journey. Um, anything other than seeing, than experiencing or knowing Christ was demonic. And so if you experienced the spirit, or if you had a spiritual experience that was outside of the scope of Christianity or what the Bible could explain, then you were seeing a demon. And so that put a lot of fear in me, um, or at the very least what he would call an evil spirit. And so that put a lot of fear in me for, to have spiritual experiences. And so it kind of shut everything down. And so I stopped having those, you know, those meetings with whatever spirit it was that would fill me up with like a golden light and things like that. And, and, um, so it, it, it kind of shut it down around, I would say eight, eight or nine completely. I didn't have any more of those experiences. Got it. And so, um, yeah, that's interesting. It's interesting to hear you describe your dad because he's super different now. Right. So it's interesting. It just makes me realize how, how, much people can evolve in their, in their age. Um, so, okay. So you were raised in the church. I guess what I'm curious is too, at a young age, a formidable age, what is it like to be a preacher's son in the eyes of the community in which you're raised? You're not really permitted to be anonymous, right? So, and your dad's up there being looked up to, I would think by the community and people are coming to him for counsel. And so he, he really has a, and your mom too, right? Like the, she also has these wifely duties that are associated to the church. So what's it like to be a kid? Like when I I guess I have two questions, one, what's it like to be in that kind of light where people are paying attention to you? And then also, what is it like when like your parents have to, I'm wondering if they had to like drop like answer the call at all times, you know, if there's a funeral, if there's someone in crisis, if someone needs something, it, it seems to me that they would have to be really responsive. And so what did that either in, in both instill in you? And then um, how did that feel to know that? I wonder if you felt like a priority or not. I, I, I've never really asked you that question. Yeah, that that's a good question. It, it, for me, my experience of being a preacher's kid, but this is a common thing among most of the preacher's kids that I spoke with coming up and were friends with, but your life is not your own. You don't get to decide your haircut. You don't get to decide the clothes you wear. You don't get to decide um, who you date. You don't get to decide um, what music you like. None of that is is on the table because the image that is projected by the family is directly related to, you know, my father keeping the job. So I really had to fall in line and I understood it on an innate level. Dad didn't even, my mom and dad didn't even have to tell me, you know, um, I mean, they did tell me you can't listen to that music or whatever, 
but they didn't tell me why it was so important. I knew. I knew that I just had to be a certain way in order for dad to keep his job. I had to smile and wave and, you know, be on display. And I had to be, you know, basically a, a paper doll for, for my parents. And so that that's another interesting aspect of it. I mean, don't get me wrong. There's really a lot of benefits for doing that. Like the, the other benefits would be I learned what being in service meant. I learned what it meant to, to be in my heart and really care for people. You know, my dad was um, uh, the the person in the in the church, the leader in the church, who who took up the the um, the the flag to go out to the uh, the poorest parts of the neighborhoods and get those people in church and to really um, clothe them and feed them and and pull them in. And because my dad grew up so poor himself, it's where his heart was. And so I really understood what it meant, you know, to to not worry about class and to not worry about social standing, and that the important thing is the heart. And those things were taught to me by that service-oriented thing. You know, there were some, learn what it meant to give lives beyond myself at a very young age. So that was cool. So what, did it take a toll on you, though, the fact that, like, your parents were in so much service? Like, did you, I guess what I'm wondering is, did you feel like they had enough to give? You? Were they, or was it like, you know, you're saying like I had to give my toys away, and it's funny for those listening. Your dad's still very much that way. I mean, he would give the shirt off his back to anyone. He would give me anything, or and I'm, and I'm his family, but like even a, a stranger. So I guess I'm wondering, like, did that give you a sense of there's enough and there's always more, and God will provide, quote unquote, or did it feel ever like a sense of lack? There wasn't enough attention, love, money to go around. Um. I, I think there was an element that, I mean, answering the question more completely now that I think about it, there, there was a, a, a sense of being on call 24-7. My dad always had to be ready for a funeral or a hospitalization to go out and pray with someone who needed it in their home or whatever it may be. That It's a 24-7 job for sure um, of a, you know, a young pastor taking on like a, a full-blown church as opposed to where he is now. So it, it the that... That is definitely something that that was very real. It was a very consuming job. It, it was all about the pastorship, and so I did feel like I didn't I didn't have much of a um, much of a chance to be fully engaged with in one sense, you know. Um, but you know, I mean, what child does, I guess. But it it was a, a demanding job for sure, um, and I think that. Um, I think there there are aspects of it that that I enjoyed a lot and got a lot out of, but you know it had its drawbacks too. So yeah, I I, do, I think the major thing to answer the question is I, I felt like um, like my life was not my own, you know. So that that did have a psychological toll and its pull on it for sure. So you move into this other part of town, it's a, or this other community, and it's a little bit rougher, it sounds like. And also, I guess it's rougher as you become a teenager as opposed to a young boy. Um, you, you, you deal with more adult-type problems. So let's talk about that phase. And then I'm also going to tag on to that question. I know that you became sort of a leader in the church or in, in I don't know, that kind of I, you could actually describe it better. I'm also curious, like when that started. If that started more in like the high school time, or was that only um, after you went to college? So tell me about those years, sort of your preteen to pre-college phase. Sure. So um, when we moved, I uh, came up through high school and middle school, and uh, it was it was rough enough where I had to to watch my back and worry about where a fight was taking place and what was happening, and um, you know several things were going on. But it, um, 
so at the, during those times, I had I kept my my friends in the poor parts of town and um, the outcasts in high school and whatnot, and that's who I related to the most. I kind of felt like everyone who was worried about status or, or um, anything like that was just lame and um, shallow. And you know, my friends could play the guitar and and could sing and and play drums and were really talented people and had depth and and had you know rough home lives that they were going through and and different things like that and and they had like a, a third dimension to them and things like that. And a lot of other people in high school that I knew of that were that were concerned with with everything else, I kind of looked down on honestly. Um, and so. I um I kind of segmented myself that way in high school and I felt like the church was like the popular kids in high school. They didn't want the poor people there. They didn't want the people who really needed the help. And so I was fed up with the church too. And so I kind of rebelled against the church and um social status and I kind of went my own way during high school. And um I still tried to maintain that I was a Christian, but I really didn't practice anything. I didn't pray. I didn't really engage. Um I reached a point where I just dressed in all black and boots all the time and, you know, just hung out with my friends. And, and that was it for middle school and high school. And I got in the occasional fight or whatever. And um, so I really wasn't engaged in the spirit aspect of things at that time or Christianity or, or any of it, even though I kind of claimed to be a Christian and I was trying to get my friends to come that way. The church was really judgmental about them and, and different things like that. And it really upset me. And so I was kind of a rebel during that time against the church, but not necessarily against Christ until I reached college. Um, so. so how how'd that go with your for your parents? You know, you having to show up and be a representation of them when you're like looking like a goth kid coming to church on Sunday. <laughs> was that what that was like? Or did you have to dress up one kind of way to go to church and then you can you felt more free to be you during the weekdays? Yeah, so I dressed a certain way at church and, um, you know, played the role for the church people when I was there and then uh, dressed in all black and, and did my thing when I went to high school. So that's how that went. Yeah. And so tell me now about college, because um, you wound up going to a Christian, a, a Nazarene Christian college. So I'm curious. um, yeah, like what's up with that? Because <laughs> you were kind of rebelling and then you got pushed into or or chose, I don't know the answer actually, uh, a really religious university. Well, by the time we um, I had reached college age, I was um, I was 17, I think. And um, uh, no, I, I just turned 18. I just turned 18 um, because my, my birthday's in July. And so I just turned 18. And when I turned 18... I shaved my head completely. I was completely bald, um, dressed in all black, and had my boots. I, I had the option to dress how I wanted to at that point. So you're in the modern mystic shop uniform? <laughs> yes, that's essentially it. Um, so I, I was um, I was dressing in the modern mystic shop uniform at, at the age of, of 18 and, and just looking how I wanted to look. And then going off to college, I was about to go off to college and everything like that. And, and I went to college for the first semester, actually for the first year like that. And, and I didn't talk to hardly anybody. I made friends once again with people who were on the fringe. They were the outcasts of that, um, of that college, you know, people with long hair at the time, that was a big deal and being in, in a Christian college and, and, you know, the, the people that were kind of rough and, and kind of a little bit streetwise that, that had come into the college, those are the people that I felt comfortable with and those are the people that I, I hung out with. And so, um, that I had a different experience in college my first year before I had this spiritual awakening with Christ after that. 
How did you wind up going to the Christian college, though, to begin with? I mean, was this sort of of the urging of your, your parents or was this a choice that you, you felt was in alignment for you? I think it was a little bit of both. I didn't know what else to do. And it felt like the um, the the good thing to do for my life is to go to college. And um, my parents were in full support of me going to a Nazarene college. And I, you know, I didn't fight going anywhere else. You know, I didn't have any hopes and dreams that were so huge wrapped around any type of college that I went to. And so I thought, well, you know, I'll go to Nazarene college. It's where I feel comfortable. I feel comfortable around Christian people. And, um, you know, I, I still halfway think I'm a Christian at that time. And, um, you know, I, I just stand on the fringe of it. And, and that's where I, I felt comfortable. So I, I went. Um, I, I didn't think it was – the college was not, not a humongous focus for me at first. When I turned 18, I didn't have this plan for my life. Like I wanted to be a doctor or a lawyer or something like that. Or well, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And, um, nothing seemed to fit. And when I thought, when I, when I imagined myself in any kind of profession, I didn't really, it didn't really click. Nothing really took. So, um, so I just went to, to Treveca. Do you think your dad kind of sent you to Treveca in hopes that you would become a preacher like him and you'd have a better opportunity? And then also I, I want to hear about this spiritual turning point for you that you had kind of alluded to. Sure. So yes, my dad was in full hopes that I would go to college and find these amazing professors and they would fill my mind with all these dreams of being a preacher. And then, and then, and then it would happen, you know, it dropped right in and I'd become this amazing preacher. And, um, he had that in mind and probably prayed his heart out over that, uh, the entire first year that I was at college. Um, so yeah. And, um, going into, to what happened, it, it was the end of my first, uh, first year. So second semester at, um, at my college. And, um, it was, uh, I only had like a few weeks left of school, but my dad was having a revival. And for those who don't know what a revival is, it's where you have this super specialized speaker who is a preacher come in and just rip the church a new one to try to wake it up for like a week and then he leaves and then the pastor's left with a fallout. That's essentially what happens with a revival, quote unquote. Um, and so they were having this revival at, at the current church and it was in a place called Pelham, Tennessee, right, right, um, right in middle Tennessee there. Um, and, um, uh, the, 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 the preacher who was doing this particular revival was very unique, extremely unique. He was, very interesting dude. Um, he didn't speak like any other preachers that I'd heard speak before. Um, he, um, he he had this certain air and spirit about him that was different than most of the other people that I'd met that had been behind the pulpit. And um, it was very interesting. During during one of his unbelievable, fiery, like spirit-filled sermons, I um, afterwards... I realized that there was another, that there was a depth and a place with actually knowing the spirit of Christ that I'd never went to, um, except maybe when I was little, but even then it was just a hint. And I wanted, like, I, I wanted to know if everything that was spoken about in spiritual experiences with Christ were real. I wanted to know if he was real. I wanted to know for sure, because I wasn't experiencing anything with him. And I, and so I was like, man, is this stuff, I, I got to know if my whole life and my father and my mother, if it's all just a sham. And so after the service, I stayed after and everybody left and I was still just sitting in the pew. And then I got up and I went to the altar and I started to pray and I prayed my freaking heart out. I mean, I, I prayed with everything I had, body convulsing, like just really like a full body, almost hypnotic experience is what I went into 
and um, I I just I kept on asking, you know, um, are are you real? Are you real? You know, like um, that kind of thing. And um, and then um, I went into I, I guess it was almost like a like I said a hypnotic trance. And in the midst of this, my dad and the evangelist was praying with me. And, um, they were praying so hard. It was kind of ridiculous. And it was just this, um, this Pentecostal like nuclear, um, item happening. And then, um, I kind of blacked out. And when I blacked out, I saw a vision of Christ on the cross and it was as if, I mean, it was literally as if I was standing or kneeling or sitting at the, at the cross as if it was really happening in real time. It's like I, I got transported there and it hit me and washed over me that it was very, very real. And so, um, the, when, when I saw that I got it, it also instilled in me this aspect of, of the Christian experience of, of, um, of Christ dying for me. Like that vision was for me. You know, it wasn't for anybody else. That vision was for me and I knew it. And, um, and I opened my eyes in a jerk and jolted away from the, from the altar. And, and uh, I said, um, he, he loves me. He's real. He loves me. He's real. I just kept on repeating. I couldn't stop. And I was shaking. I was crying. You know, all that happened. And that completely swept me over. And it, it, um, I was a totally different person. It was like night and day. I stopped wearing all black because I didn't feel like I needed to. It was almost like a natural thing for me to to move into a place of really heartfelt experience and love with with myself and with people, and I prayed and studied the Bible like I was uh, a militant over it, you know. Um, so like I was a holy warrior. Like I I prayed for hours, and I would put myself into these humongous spiritual experiences through prayer. And I'd have these experiences with whatever God is or Christ was to me at the time, and I would um, I would have these immense um, moments of clarity with Scripture and the Bible because I studied it so deeply. I'd go back and study it in the original Hebrew um, and the original Greek for the um, Old and New Testament, and I would make the uh, I would go into exegetical study where you actually go. Um, you start to really pick the word apart and make it into stories as opposed to just taking one line of, of scripture and, and basing like a whole sermon off that. I would take the whole stories and, and really learn and dig deep. And so I did this um, all summer, all summer. I was like this. And when I came back to college, I was freaking on fire. I mean, I would, I would stay up until two o'clock in the morning praying with people who needed help or, or needed counsel or anything like that. I became this this thing, this almost like enigma on campus because people saw the change in me and it, it wasn't just seeing the the physical change. Like I grew my hair out, started dressing nice, getting in shape, you know, all that stuff. And I went from being like this outcast to being one of the most popular people on campus, but it wasn't because I was trying to be, it's because I was just being this person who was full of love and, and was excited about what I believed in. And so excited and so spirit filled because I was spending so much time in prayer that people could feel the energy like off of me. So when I would walk up to a person or when I walked into a room, everybody would turn their heads and look because I was walking in almost like the spirit trance in a way because I was praying so much. And so it was it was a very interesting experience to kind of uh, juggle between the two. So. Wow. So that's quite a transformation. Now, if you were to look back, knowing all that you know about spirit and the astral and all the experiences that you've had since then, these other spiritual experiences and modalities, how 
how do you explain what happened to you? Like, do you think it was Christ consciousness? Do you think it was something else? H- how do you reconcile that experience? Because spoiler alert, you're no longer Christian. So <laughs> I'm curious um, what, like how your adult mind today uh, can categorize that or if you even need to. Yeah, it got really crazy there. So I, I started being, because I studied the scripture so much and was praying, um, I started preaching. I started was preaching back at my dad's uh, church at the time that he was at, and then it just, it broke off from there. Um, people were inviting me out to mega churches to come and preach and everything, because when I spoke, it just, I mean, I just channeled energy and went throughout the entire thing. And and so it got, it got I mean, it I got a lot of attention and was traveling all over the Southeast to preach. And I was only 22, maybe 20. I I can't remember the exact age, but I was in my early, early 20s um, when this was happening. No, I was, I was 19. I was, I was 19 and this was happening. Um, 1920, that was the age I was, 1920. And so it was, I, I think that my spiritual experience and my belief structure and who I was is pushing past the psychology of who I am and, um, to, to say that differently, I think I was having a lot of attention, a lot of experience, and almost like, um, I guess, in a, for for lack of a better term, like a regional Christian rock star kind of status is what I had. And um, I hadn't done any work on myself whatsoever about um, my issues with my mother and my father and the whole Christian setup and, and the different things like that when it comes to psychology and when it comes to the deeper understandings of how all that moves inside of a person, let alone me. And... Um, and so uh, eventually it, it all it all came to a head and I had to quit and leave college. There was a lot that happened and it was all uh, around girls and things like that. And I, did, I realized at that point and, I, and it almost broke me. I, I, I lost my whole community over a few things that happened. And, and it happened because of issues that I, I was unaware of, subconscious issues that were coming out. And, um, and I, I needed help uh, really bad around it, but I didn't realize how much help I needed until I, I met, um, a person who introduced me to healing work and what that actually looks like and what it looks like to study the self from a psychological point of view, not just a spiritual point of view. And I thought that everything could just be contained in the spiritual aspect. Um, but I didn't understand that there's an expertise and a depth to the psychology of a being that really lends its way to clarity and to understanding in a way that I'd never experienced. And so um, she introduced me to um, understanding yourself and others. And at the time, understanding yourself and others was a program put together by an organization out of Texas. And it had a lot to do with awakening a person and awareness training and getting them by psychological blocks that, that were in their way to becoming a self-actualized human being. And they would do this for a whole weekend. And um, there was a place doing that here in Atlanta called the Center for Inner Knowing at the time. And um, the Center for Inner Knowing put that on. And um, I went down and that completely changed my life because I experienced truth there like I had never experienced anywhere in my life. So a couple of questions. I want to get clear. Two things. I want to get clearer on the timeline. So like was like, did you go to this program because you you wound up getting married and having kids mm-hmm. so I don't want to skip that part of it yeah, yeah. but that, and then I also want to go back like I, I still don't feel like you you answered the question like what was the spiritual experience that you had in that church that day oh, yes. now with your understanding that you have as a 
as a practitioner of magic and meditation and all these other things. Yes, I missed that. Sorry about that. But um, so I, I know what happened was that I had an experience of um, uh, when we have spiritual experiences, a lot of times it has more to do with our psychology than it does actually something that's outside of us. Right. And so the what I was experiencing was um, the fact that Christ consciousness and the ability to live through our hearts and actually have an experience of love in the world and embody that and really have an experience that that connects us. I believe that that Christ consciousness came at a time when the world was in a very dark place, you know, an eye for an eye was the best you could do. And so that when Christ came along, he's like, no, how about loving your enemy? You know, how about really embodying something different? And so whether or not he even lived or whether or not he was even real, the concept that love is the fulfillment of all laws, that was a revolutionary concept. We had never encountered compassion in that sense. And for that, uh, that deep amount of understanding as a human species until that happened and, and it, it, um, it injected that idea into the culture of humanity at large. And so I think that it came at a time when the world needed it. I think it saved the world, to be honest with you, because we were heading into like constant war, dark places, a lot of slavery, a lot of things happening at the time. If you study what was happening in, in that era, it was not, not a great place. And when Christ came or the concept of Christ came, it saved the world. And I think that Christ consciousness is a very real thing. Christ consciousness, um, is the, the, the energy of pure compassion and love and how it's embodied in human beings throughout the entire world. And I think you can tap into that and the personification of it is Jesus. And I think that's what I tapped into at the altar. Um, and I think that's what everybody taps into as a spiritual experience um, with, um, with Christianity or with any modality, really. Um, I think that forces are what's at large. Um, forces that represent big energies, you know, like compassion, um, like peace, or like war, or like, um, you know, um, the cosmic energy of the sun, or any number of things. Those are humongous energies that affect all of humankind. And spirits and energies or personifications of those energies that can come forward and be something and be the way that you interact with those and embody those and have a deeper experience of them is what's the most important. And it's important that we start to really work those and deepen our relationship with those energies. And so I think that's what happened with the, the Christ experience. And it's also what's happened with other spirits that I've had experiences with since then. You know, So I, I think it's true with, with all the energies that are out there. We can develop relationships with all those and deepen them and become more complete human beings because of it and have more mastery in our lives. So I've shared before about how, you know, my biggest psychic awakening started to happen with angels and you had this pivotal moment with, with Jesus. Do you think that spirit presents itself in powerful ways, at least at first, in ways that fit into our mindset where we can actually receive it so that it is less scary and it, and we can, we can accept it or do you? Like, or, or do you think it's just like a coincidence that you saw Jesus and you're like, this is real. And I saw angels being raised Catholic. What do you think about that? Totally. I think, I think that I go back to, I, I said earlier that, um, that it's, it can be based more in our psychology than actually like an outward spiritual experience. And I think that's true for, for sure. I, I think that our psychology and how we, how we, the boxes that we put ourselves in from the training we've received since we were little, taught by our parents, taught by our peers, 
all of that is a comfortable place for us to be. Um, even if we're trying to run away from it, it's still what we know. And in that, our spiritual, our spirit guides and also the cosmic energies that have an affinity for us and want to develop a relationship with us, they work through those, through those aspects of being so that we feel more comfortable coming, uh, coming in and having experiences that can upgrade us, having experiences that can transform us. So you jumped to UIO. So I'm curious where that falls in your timeline of um, getting, having, getting, getting pregnant, getting married, having kids. So where was that experience in the timeline that you are describing? Sure. Understanding yourself and others, were, um, that was introduced to me at, at the time, then my wife, um, who, what happened was I met her on the rebound of, of having, you know, left um, college and left the, um, my speaking engagements and, and evangelizing and all that behind. I'm going to interrupt you. You got kind of like canceled before cancel culture. I mean, wouldn't you yeah. say that's actually what happened to you? Yeah, absolutely. So I was spending time. And this is what happened in college. Um, I was spending time taking care of a um, of someone, and they claimed to have uh, children by me when I, we hadn't even had sexual relations. And everyone believed that, and they basically just canceled me. They thought I was some kind of of person that, um, that, that took advantage of this woman or, or whatever it may be. And so they, they ousted me because of that. And so, um, I was really heartbroken. I was really, uh, devastated because of that. And the person that I found to be rebound with, um, we actually did start having sex and she got pregnant. And so, um, when she got pregnant, you know, six months later, we decided to get married just to try to make it a go and, and give it like a, a good run to, to offer a good life for this child. And so... And how old were you? I was 22, I think, at the time. You were a baby. I was. I was very young when all this happened. And so, um, uh, 22 at the time that I got married, I believe. And what what happened uh, then was she knew about she she was married to you know basically a baby like you're saying she was six years older than me and she had a lot of experiences in healing modalities and um, she said look I, I the, the our first child was I think a year old I think I think a year old so I was 23 yes I was 23 and she said look you got to go get help and start unpacking yourself a little bit because all your experiences with your mother you're just putting on me. And I can't live with this. So it's either you go get help or we just get a divorce and we try to, to muddle through this that way. And so I looked up, you know, understanding yourself and others, which she introduced me to the, uh, the name of it. And then it was being taught in the Center for Inner Knowing here in Atlanta. Um, so that's what happened there. And so I came down and, and had amazing awarenesses, amazing um uh, movements there. They, they specialize in neurolinguistic programming and gestalt therapy and uh, for those that don't know, Gestalt therapy is where you basically um, go through the uh, energy, the emotions around trauma and experiences that you've had that programmed you pretty deeply in your relationships. And so you start to move through those. And once you release the emotions, then you can actually change the belief systems around it and tell yourself a, a different story around it and, and gain perspective and some authority around it. And so um, it was a whole weekend of that. And I walked away understanding that that was the most transformative truth I'd ever experienced out, you know, um, even beyond what, whatever I had experienced in the church or anything like that. And so that started a journey of really um, self-actualization self study and depth psychology study that um, a, a few years later, I'd say about um, 
eight years later that I got back into and really just committed myself to. So that was the timeline. I'm curious. Um, so during that eight years, because that's a big jump, I'm wondering how fatherhood and marriage, if it did at all, impacted your idea of spirituality. And I mean, if unless I'm wrong, I feel like you were still categorized yourself as Christian during that eight years. Because I feel like maybe when we met around that eight years later, maybe I, I feel like you were still either like on the fringe or still identifying or like really questioning, like if I'm not, if I lose that Christian identity, like who am I from a spiritual perspective? So I'm curious to hear more about that. So after eight years, um, what happened was uh, we, I got a divorce and I'd had another child with, um, with my ex and um, we, we got a divorce. And um, so the, or we separated if I remember correctly now, yeah, we, you didn't get a divorce. divorce. Yeah. <laughs> didn't get a divorce then, but we separated. And, um, my, I knew that my marriage was falling apart. She was with another person. And, um, I knew that, um, I needed to change and upgrade my life if I wanted to have anything. And so I started to really, um, get back into, um, depth psychology and whatnot and, uh, and the understanding for that. But before all that happened in 2008, I had a car accident and it shifted my hip on my on its axis. Um, this is shortly after we separated, and I couldn't walk for eight months. And um, I taught myself how to walk again, and did a lot of therapy with a chiropractor, and did a lot of exercises and things like that, and meditation. And I got myself back right and was able to walk, and um, I could walk on a cane. And during that time, when I was when I couldn't walk for eight months, I had studied about ayahuasca and uh, shamanism and different things like that. And so I thought when I, when I encountered that through meditation and through searching, I knew that it was my next move to help me transform. And in, two, in the summer of 2009, I boarded a plane with, with a cane, and I was determined to stay down there and just do ayahuasca until I had changed enough and integrated enough to come back. And so, because I was kind of desperate. Um, I had two kids from a, a former marriage, and, um, and I couldn't walk. And so here I am uh, having my parents take care of me and walk me to the bathroom and everything like that. And, um, and I've got two kids to take care of. So it was, it was a very harrowing time for me. And so I was desperate. And so I just went into um, uh, Peru uh, outside of Pucapa um, in the jungle there. And I went to a Moloka where the, uh, it's a little round hut where they do ayahuasca. And I stayed there for nearly a month just doing ayahuasca and, um, and integrating and going through some of the most hellish and freakish parts of my life because um, ayahuasca forces you to face your fears. And I was scared of letting go of Jesus. I was scared if I completely let go of the concept of Jesus um, as a real thing for me and, and stop claiming to be a Christian, that I would, um, I would risk going to hell. And, um, and so after I started realizing that things are a little bit more universal than that and things aren't black and white and um, there's a lot of scale to things and there's a spirit world to engage with and things are a little different than all that and ayahuasca finally got me there through a few experiences um, of that, then um, I started to, to let go of that and started to have more of a universal understanding of it all. And, um, and so it brought me through and I, I knew that I needed to integrate and the way that I integrated was to come back to the Center for Inner Knowing and to start to really do work. And um, for the next five years, I did depth psychology work, shamanism, and, um, and, and I learned an energy modality 
to um, to really start to get rid of ancestral trauma and things of that nature during that time as well, called reunion. Um, and Kelly does those now in the lunation sessions. But um, but yeah, so so that was my life for six years straight, and um, that um, I, I came out being a completely different human being from the time that I went to Peru. Um, completely healed myself of, of, uh, of not being able to walk, um, started to, uh, dynamically change who I was and was able to embody myself more and had a, a more, uh, or a greater understanding through experience of the spirit world and of myself and the clarity that I had there. And I met Kelly, um, during that time, during that work, um, and we got married. So I will say as someone who had the privilege of experiencing that change alongside of you. Um, it was profound. When I first met Brandon, I've mentioned this before, but we didn't really get along or didn't weren't really drawn to each other um, because our patterns were so strong. And with Brandon, and I'm sure I have my own quirks, but you could actually, at least for me, and maybe it's because I was meant to be his wife, but I could see it on his face. Like his face looked like a mask almost, you know? And I was able to, over the course of those years, like he had like this um, veneer that after hearing your story of perfection and and what was needed as you to show up like super shiny and well adjusted and all these things, it's like he showed up to that place that way still, even though he had done a lot more work and he was obviously a grown man. Um, but it's pretty amazing to be able to watch someone over the years go through such a profound shift to where at first, you know, I wasn't the only one that was sort of repelled by that veneer. And then by the end, when we started dating, all of the women there were like, Brandon's looking so good. And physically, you know, he didn't look much different as far as his build or anything like that. But it was such a profound, um, almost melting of the, you can just see it like for me I could see it physically as well as energetically and so it and I think that's why we were able to fall in love there was you get to experience people at their core nature as opposed to like beyond the programming and then we had the opportunity to pick a partner beyond the programming and the default setting so just to vouch for how much you really did change it's, it was it was quite remarkable so now tell me a little bit about I think people that have been listening kind of know how the store came to be, and and I don't know that we need to necessarily go into that path, but I'm more curious about sort of like mentors that crossed your path and how you kind of transitioned from, you still, you know, do shamanism, but how you really started to flow into the world of ritual and ritual magic, because I've observed lately that that, I mean, for the past many years, that's been your primary anchor. And so I'm curious to hear about that and how how you show you connected with that work like from like I don't even know like when did you first connect with that work and how I first connected with with magic whenever um we we were married I think about 8 months into our marriage maybe maybe a year and um and I was working uh I was working uh, for Whole Foods I was a team leader there and then I worked for um a startup uh, called Fasubo, and they did um, customer experience on the back end. And um, and during uh, my transition from Whole Foods to Fasubo was because of a spell. 
And um, I was, I've always been interested in magic and, and understanding it and different things like that because, uh, because of my experiences as a child with spirits and because of, of my experiences with shamanism and the spirit world in general, I wanted to understand the structure or the nature of the spirit world. I wanted to understand what our relationship with energy was. Um, because we had done the reunion process and healed ancestral trauma and it was real. Like we could see our relationship shift and everything from that. And I was like, man, what is all this? So so let me get into like the meat and potatoes of what this is. What is beyond the psychology? Because, you know, as, as they said at the Center for Inner Knowing, and, and now it's called school, the Sohad, the, the, the thing that you'll, the, the thing that they said is psychology can take you from A to B, but from B to C is essence work. And I was like, what do they, they mean by that? What does that mean? What does essence work mean? And what does it mean to get into the energy of things? So I started asking all those questions about a year into our marriage. And I thought, well, I'll experiment, you know, and just see if any of it is, is, um, is good or not. And so, or, or what's happening with it or if, or if it aligns with me. And so I did a wealth working, which is a, a, a working is a, a series of rituals that stack on, on top of each other. And I started the wealth working and I just started the wealth working. I wasn't doing... Um, you know, the full ritual set yet. There was a, a preparatory phase and everything like that. And I started doing the wealth working and calling on different energies that were either, you know, angelic or demonic in nature or whatever, as they would classify them. But all of it is just spirits and energies. And so we were, pull, I was pulling in different energies at one point, but, um, but early on, I, um, I got offered a job that tripled my income with, um, with uh, the customer experience uh, company called Fasubo. And so uh, I, I upgraded from Whole Foods being a team lead there to being in Fasubo and I tripled my income. Um, or at the very least, I doubled it if I remember correctly. And that, that did it for me. And that all happened right when I started the spell. And so I had just begun it. I hadn't even been, been doing the ritual set yet. And, um, and so it was pretty amazing. And so I said, wow, this stuff is is crazy, crazy amazing. It works. So let me find out why it works, how it works, how to deepen myself through it and in it and why it's important, right? Why do we ever even start doing rituals? So I started asking all these questions and studying every book I could get my hands on and started to really experience what ritual can do, why it's important, how it engages the psychology and the whole being, um, all of those things and started changing myself with it and changing my surroundings and settings and fulfilling my desires and then upgrading and transforming, transforming myself through it. So it was a pretty interesting experience and it, it's been great so far. So who helped you along the way regarding teachers or authors or, you know, I, I really believe that uh, teachers, at least in our life to date, has played a big part of our transformation work. Um, so who did you run across and, and who helped you and how? So, um, when it came to, to magic, um, there weren't, there weren't too many people out there like teaching magic, um, that were, that were really felt legit to me. I was, I was really, really, I mean, for lack of a better term, blessed or, or really just, um, intuitive and in alignment with, with, with what I could find that was true when it came to teachers. Um, that first place that I went to the center for inner knowing at the time had amazing teachers. Like they were 30-year veterans in psychology, and they understood energy work, and they understood that stuff, and I, and they were able to take what I learned in ayahuasca and deepen it, 
And um, it was amazing. And then I, I had great shamanic teachers, but most of them were in Peru at the time. So I didn't develop good relationships with them, but the relationships I had with the, the folks at Center for Inner Knowing were great at the time. And then um, when I moved into magic, I had, um, I met, I don't know, how, oh, I, I think I read one of her books, but I, I met um, a, um, uh, virtually, I met a, a woman on the West Coast who um, is a high priestess in, in a coven uh, for uh, demon altars, and she is also training to be a palo priestess, which is kind of like the deep side of Santeria. So she was completely legit and very, very wonderful to, to talk to and things like that when it came to magic and exchanging information there. And so I've learned a lot from her. Um, but for the most part, magic has been kind of a solo journey. Um, the, and that's the beauty of it. You can make, after you learn like a good foundation, I, I highly believe you need to learn how, how to have a good foundation. And if there's any deep energies you want initiated into, sometimes it takes a teacher to do that. But, um, but other than that, it, it can be somewhat of a solo journey. But I have had some depth courses that I've taken with um, uh, Jason Miller. Jason Miller's amazing. Um, his books are great. But also his courses over Hecate are just some of the deepest stuff that I've ever walked into. It's just really, really great to unpack that, those things. Um, and um, I've, I've recently made uh, good friends uh, with a, a person called D.H. Thorne. We're good acquaintances. And D.H., his, his book... Um, uh, his initial book is one of the most amazing books that I think anybody could read over magic. It outlines all the basics perfectly. And uh, just having a good riff and exchange with him was great and, and has been great recently. But yeah, that, that pretty much sums it up. Very cool. And so before we move into it, I do want to talk about how you work with others and initiate them into, not initiate, but help them find this path, the same path that you have. Can you, because you've mentioned like, demon and daemon ology and altars a couple of times and i know that in our upcoming book spells for the modern mystic we do in like two sentences address this massive thing but i think it's important i would love for you to sort of explain and define what uh your understanding of a demonic energies or pantheons are and then i just find it completely interesting that some like you know a preacher's son also uh, works with these energies. And if you could explain how it is that you were able to transition your psyche from, if it's not Jesus, it's the devil, to a neutral space when it comes to the opposite kind of work. Yeah, um, I think one of the greatest things is the integration work that I did with shamanism that really helped me with a lot of that. Understanding that everything's energy, whether whether we want to label it angelic or demonic, it's all just energies. Um, the thing about what um, what demons are actually are versus what we've been led to believe is that um, if you if you can imagine, let me define angels. So angels are the highest expression of, of cosmic energy that come in the form of um, of sacred geometry. So that's why you'll see a lot of angels. Um, have a good relationship with sacred geometry like Metatron um, or um, a lot of other them ha have symbols that have triangles within triangles within triangles and, and, and different sacred or the, the tree of life and, and different things like that the, the, or the flower of life that's actually a, a, an angelic uh, inspired thing 
though it's it they represent like the um some of the more cosmic energies daemonics represent a lot of the energies that really involve humanity like really getting down to earth what are some of the things that that we have to transmute as human beings just to live we have to um a lot of us uh kill for our food you know we um, we have to defend ourselves sometimes um, in this world. We have to learn what it is to have resilience and to be tough sometimes. We have to um, we have to grapple with our ethics and what it means to either always tell the truth or do we tell a lie here or or what what are the the inner struggles and the projections that we have and the trainings that we have around and th- around that and through all of that. And demonics are the expressions of the transmutations of that massive amount of energy shared throughout all of the world of human beings. And so um, that that's kind of the difference is the angelics are more out there in their reach and their touch. And because of that, daemonics, because they kind of are born of and really relate to the kind of energy that we share in our daily lives and our struggles as human beings, they're a lot easier to touch and to reach. And that's really the only difference. And one is not more evil than the other one. I've had many practitioners that claim they can curse through angels as well as demons. And that's, that's been my experience as well. Not that I go around cursing, but if I wanted to, I could do it through an angel or a demon because they're just personifications of an expression of a cosmic force. That's it. So can you explain to me why or how there's the stories in the Bible pertaining to those energies and how or maybe why we've been programmed to avoid not just avoid be fearful of um demons and or demonic energies yeah certainly so you can imagine like an ancient understanding so an ancient understanding when uh, from ancient cultures that's where the bible came from is ancient cultures uh judaic understanding and, and things like that but also cultures at the time that were mesopotamian in nature and and sumerian and you had all these different cultures that had like really old um, ways of seeing the world and understanding the world. And some, like say for instance, um, what we would do in ancient cultures is we'd personify everything. We believed in animism, that everything had an energy and everything had a life. And so a tornado had a life. Um, you know, a tsunami had a life. These things, plagues and famine, they had a life. And so we would give them a personification and we would call it a demon or we would call it something that was that was evil or, or not great. Actually, in some of the older culture, the word demon actually means um, wise one or divine intelligence, right? It's, it, came, it came from the word daimon um, in, in Greek. And so we actually revered spirits that were more closely related to our experience at one point, but we started becoming fearful of them whenever the church took over. The church took over and said, everything that you're personifying that is not Christ, right, is evil. And so we said, oh no, diamonds are evil. You know, the, these things that have been wise guides for us over time, they're evil. And they're like, yeah, that's evil. And so we, start, we started to have to believe that. And we started to make up stories around it in the New Testament about demon possession and things like that that really hadn't been um, too much of an issue, you know, until then. And so the, the Bible, the, the, those old understandings, the reason why you fear demonic forces as opposed to actually working with them is because the church actually came in and did that. If you read the Old Testament, there wasn't a lot of fear around demons. They were just a part of, uh, of what was happening. You know, uh, Satan represented the force of knowledge in Genesis, 
And so it wasn't that he came through and just did this rush-odd thing over us, but he did introduce us to knowledge, right? And that was a quote-unquote sinful thing. And so this, there's a lot of psychology that I don't want to unpack it and everything like that. But it wasn't that demons were this ferocious force that came in or these other gods were ferocious forces that came in and just completely wiped out humanity and were something that to really be feared. They were part of the natural order of things a little bit more in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament that you have a lot of fear around all of that. Where did the notion of fallen angels come from then? Was that the... yeah. So fallen angels, uh, the notion, if there's some of the law scriptures or some of the scriptures that have been found today, like um, I, I can't, the Dead Sea Scrolls and a few others, the Book of Enoch, um, a few other things that talk about how fallen angels were a very real thing, like Azazel and a, a few others. Samael is considered a, a fallen angel nowadays, or at least an angel that's a little bit nefarious to work with because that was the angel of death, supposedly in the Old Testament. So Here's the thing about that is that um, the the way that, that the ancient mind would understand what is heavenly versus where we are, we viewed ourselves with contempt. We didn't understand how great we are as, as human beings. We thought we were these lowly things that raped and killed and murdered and that's all we were good for. And, you know, there was slavery and different things like that. We didn't have like a an elevated view of ourselves in ancient in the ancient world. And so in that, anything that wanted to work with us compared to what is so heavenly has to fall. It has to be a lowly thing to work with a human, you know, compared to the angels that, that um, have the sacred geometry and the, and the beginning seedings of life that, that are so elevated. And so what they would consider is an angel that actually wanted to work with us and teach us is a fallen angel because that is an angel that lowered their frequency enough to be able to work with humankind. And so they didn't have the same frequency as the other angels that didn't do that. And so we viewed them as this lesser than spirit that was willing to work with human beings, but it's actually the opposite. They were, they were noble for doing that thing. Yeah, that's how we explain it in the couple sentences in our book is through Abrahamic religions and traditions, the notion of a fallen angel when really it was a choice for these beings to be in service to mankind and then through the I don't want to I almost said the mythology of the Bible I don't want to be that disregarding to people who believe in those um, texts in those literal ways but um, due to that part of the Bible we've, we've sort of really got fearful around it Awesome. Well, I feel like that kind of gets us close to present day so I'd love if you could quickly as we wrap up uh, talk to folks about how you work with clients and how if people are interested in this kind of work all the way from, you know, the self-psychology work all the way through the the ritual work and partnering with these energies to create transformation in your life. You've had a lot of success with that with folks. And so um, I'd love for you to share uh, how it is that you work with people and um, tell us about how they can work with you. Sure. So I've created, um, I, I call it spiritual self-mastery. It is um, a proprietary coaching program that I've developed that um, it engages uh, the fullness of a human being um, in uh, as much as we can anyway in the amount of time that we have. Um, usually it's an eight-week program. I'm thinking about uh, making it online and extending it to a 90-day program. But essentially what it is is the introduction into the, the dense concepts of of um, what it means to unpack the self and, and what it means to unpack our programming so that we can really reach our full potential in a lifetime. 
Um, and I combine that with what it means to grow spiritually. Because in the West, we don't understand what it means to have a spiritual practice. Having a spiritual practice is doing yoga and, and, and meditating. But there's actually a lot more depth to a spiritual practice than that. Um, and I mean, doing that is more than a, a lot of people do. So if you're doing that, hey, that's great. But there's actually a lot more awaiting you if you want to um, grasp for it. And so you can take yourself into places on the inner and also the outer um, of your life that, um, that are new horizons, that are new ways of transforming, new ways of being that go well beyond those, um, those areas of, of life. And so that's, that's what I train and teach in my, um, in my class is the, um, first of all, how to unpack and how to, how to understand our programming and what it means to have these uh, multiple identities in ourselves, like the little child and different things like that, that we deal with on a daily basis um, and start to become more conscious and aware of how we're maneuvering and what kind of identities we're, we're creating our life from. And then challenging that, understanding it, unpacking it, and moving into what it means to grow spiritually. And I customize spiritual practices for people, but typically we'll have a blanket spiritual practice, and then we go into one-on-one work where we go into depth work and what it actually looks like for you as a person. So I'll work with you right where you're at, whether you be new um, into spiritual practices and don't understand them at all, or whether you are a veteran and you want to deepen where you're at right now and you've been doing it for years, I can take you either way. Um, it's kind of a specialty that I've developed. And so, um, so there you are. And I'm doing this work at the, um, the sep- uh, at the end of September after our book launch. I'm taking on a new class. So, And I just want to add what's so important about the way that Brandon does this is that um, if you don't first reconcile your psychology, your beliefs, your programming, you're going to carry that with you into any spiritual practice that you undertake. And so that's why it's so important to do these things in a dualistic way. Um, I was uh, following, I forgot what her name is, but this witch on um, Instagram and she's freaking awesome. Uh, And she did this video on like how I became a witch. And it was all like, and she was like, Step one, go to therapy. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so it's it's known by the the deep practitioners of this magic that you have to work on your belief system and, and sort of um, deprogram yourself or else you're going to carry it with you and, and not be as potent. And that's why in our book, one of the keys to ritual is insane belief. You've got to Uh, work on the programming so that you can get to the place where you even believe that you're worthy of having this life that you want. So just to add to that, well, thank you so much, Brandon, for this illuminating conversation. I learned a few new things about you. And, um, and for everyone there, I would love for you to, if you're interested, um, probably best thing would be to email Brandon at Brandon at modernmysticshop.com so he can send you the information to sign up for his class when it's launched. But also, you guys, we do have our book coming out very soon. It's called Spells for the Modern Mystic, a ritual guidebook and spell casting kit. And this is something that Brandon and I wrote together um, in partnership. And I think we have the perfect balance of depth and approachability with this book, no matter where you are on your uh, spell casting journey. It is available right now for pre-order wherever books are sold. And then it is 
officially launched on September 29th. And then if you also would save the date on October 7th, we are going to be announcing uh, officially our a book launch event, but we're going to have a free virtual book launch event. It's going to be called The Witching Hour, and it's going to be a variety and comedy show. So we are going to promote our book, but we're going to make it lots of fun. And if you say the date, it'll be 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And we would love for you guys to join us. And we don't, as, as deep as this conversation went, we don't take ourselves too seriously. So we're going to do a lot of laughing um and learning and having fun so thank you brandon thank you it's been fun and we look forward to hearing from everyone soon and stay tuned for another episode of sunday school next week you'll roll into a class and then the week following we've got another in-depth interview thanks so much hi it's kelly As much as I pride myself in being a mystic, I take equal pride in being an entrepreneur, and I love to share how I blended both worlds to create the incredible Modern Mystic brand. So I'm so excited to announce that I am co-hosting the Guided by Intuition Gathering, a virtual event for creative business owners with woo-woo vibes with one of my business besties, Emily Thompson of Being Boss. This virtual event is October 8th through 10th. We are bringing together a top tier of talented business owners who bring their powerful metaphysical tools to the table and are eager to share their tips, tactics, and techniques of growing a business with intuition guiding the way. We're spending three days focusing on aligning your intuition and heart so that you can use it to guide your business towards your highest purpose. We will be hosting panels, keynotes, workshops, and live podcast recordings. Plus, there's the Being Boss promise of actionable steps, practical advice, and results-driven guidance. And there's a whole tribe of bosses. They're just there ready to connect, dive deep, and do the work. Sounds great, right? It gets even better. A select number of VIPs get access to the whole gathering, plus an all-day masterminding session on Monday with me and Emily. We will add our magic to what you've got going on to help accelerate and inspire. If this is up your alley, hit the link in the show notes to join us. These are truly skills that all business owners will need to hone to thrive in the new age. I hope to see you there. This episode was produced by Kirsten Hedges and produced and edited by Georgie Harris. For more information, visit us at modernmysticshop.com and click on Sunday School.